Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Talking about... We're going to be talking a little bit about midlife stuff. So, one of you, you're going to have to explain how you look so good midlife there, <laughs> as we get into this. But the last thing I'll say is, you know, I just, Jim's such a, a fantastic communicator. You know, if I could boil it down to that, is he takes these concepts, these thoughts, um, th- these experiences that both he has in his life as well as. Uh, that what he learns from others and he's just able to distill them down into these very digestible concise ideas that i think everybody should listen to him whether it's on his podcast or through the insecurity project no what sort james what's the name of your book the insecure not the the book is the insecurity project as well as the overarching the the main book is called unhindered the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity uh the the business in, in at large is called the Insecurity Project. Yes, um, that's that it. Was. And, and then the next book was the One Minute Coach, which is really, I mean, both books are just so fantastic. And and the way that you distill this idea of insecurity is so helpful and digestible, like I said. that I, I think I said in the last podcast, and I say it again today, There, it's essential reading. It's absolutely essential mm-hmm. reading. So we'll put those in the show notes. Welcome back, sir. It's good to see you, my friend. <laughs> it's always a treat talking to you, and thank you so much for having me back on the show. So we're gonna we're gonna kick things off. You're writing a new book, and as a fellow writer, I always like to talk about the creative process a little bit. But why don't you why don't you why don't you kick us off with what the new book's called and what it's about? So the uh, the working title whether it makes it through all the editing and publishing uh you know hopefully it's this is the title that, that lasts it's called midlife motivation how to upgrade from self discipline to self permission uh and it's it's a book for ambitious midlifers who've got a great measure of success from the first season of their life but primarily through the motivation strategy of of discipline um which when you examine it is kind of energy against yourself so it's it's using your best energy to make yourself do what you wouldn't do otherwise mm-hmm. and and you can you can achieve all kinds of things with that obviously um but it's the only tool in the shed for most people and i think it's uh it's massively overrated especially when it comes to midlife because it's it's very brutal energy and very unkind energy uh, and so i find the predictable pinch point of the midlife entrepreneur leader business owner trying to do something meaningful with their life is that they find they can't access as much discipline as they used to. And that frustrates them because uh, it drives down their performance. And so I think it's a wonderful dilemma to have happen and a great opportunity to upgrade the motivation system to energy with yourself, which is the self permission structure. So um, I think self permission is easily misunderstood. And I, I hear people say, Oh, I'm just going to give myself permission to be happy. I'm going to give myself permission to not care what others think. I'll give myself permission to rest. But that's still self-discipline energy. It's still managing yourself to do the thing you wouldn't do otherwise. 
So it turns out that permission must be granted from your unconscious. You can't give it from the conscious. Permission is granted when you satisfy the conditions that are required and make the necessary upgrades to your system. So so this book is the explanation of the four upgrades you would have to make to your internal operating system mm-hmm. to make peace with yourself so that your unconscious would actually be willing to give you more energy. It, it's actually not willing to give you more energy if your system is based on madness because what would that serve you? So when you upgrade it, uh, <laughs> handbrake comes off, power up. I'm smiling a bit because... Well, one, the, the madness that you mentioned and, and this whole, this midlife, you know, how we, we would address this in midlife, the changes where we are as a young man or woman embarking on these paths and the energy we have and the naivete and then sort of the, the openness versus once the world has beat the shit out of us for five years. So we're going to get into this. This is a fascinating topic, but I want to start with, you talked about energy against yourself. And writing the book, writing a book, is the ultimate battle of energy against it yourself. So, how you know your your this is number three. How was the writing it's, process uh, for it's you? Actually, numbers. So, it's sure, to pick sorry, up, but it's no, actually number six. No, there you go. I I apologize. What what three am I missing? Uh, well, the first book I wrote, I don't mention. Very often because everyone's got their first a romance book. Novel, yeah. wasn't it? You wrote a romance novel. <laughs> Erotica. This was the book. <laughs> um, first book I wrote was called 12 Coaching Conversations Every Disciple Must Have. Oh, and it was when nice. I came out of being a pastor and started coaching. It was my way of trying to bridge the two worlds. And it wasn't very well received at all. It probably wasn't very well written, but nevertheless, it, it was my, I was in the game as a writer. Um, then elegantly simple solutions to complex people problems was was my second book, um, and that's still the book that I've sold the most copies of. Uh, then unhindered the seven yeah. essential practices for overcoming insecurity. Then the one minute coach, which is the compilation of all the radio segments, the three hundred and sixty five radio segments. Um, the latest one was leverage: how to change the people you love for all the right reasons and get the relationships you deserve. Oh yes. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, the the midlife motivation is number six. So, so how is it, how has your writing pro? Like, well, well, we'll talk about your writing process. But how how were you in this process? Because you once described it to me. You said, "I'm not paraphrase and butcher it," but you you said something to the effect of like, "You're a total mess when you're writing. You don't take care of yourself. You know, if you drank, you would probably just drink and smoke." Through the whole thing until it was done, until you birthed it. Like how, how was this process? How was the battle with the blank page? The battle with, I know the battle is not the right word for you, but with all of that sixth time around, what changed mm. all of that? So a few things have changed since book number three. So I, I heard Jerry Seinfeld interviewed on Tim Ferriss's podcast and that interview changed my life because he said two things firstly uh, he identified as a writer and I was very surprised by that it made sense after I heard him explain it but he said primarily I'm a writer that is how I do what I do and and I kind of heard him say that and thought my goodness I, I wonder if I could call myself a writer too and primarily organize myself around that and wrestle with that for 
a couple of weeks until I couldn't escape it. I, I am, in fact, a writer. That is the central organizing principle. Writing is not something that I do. It is the center. And so I came to terms with that. I don't find that it's an easy thing. But I, but Jerry Seinfeld's second thing was that don't let anyone tell you they know how to write. It's an impossible art and, and no <laughs> one knows what they're doing. So so that that kind of went, okay, great. Well, I'm a writer and it's going to be hard, And I'll, but I'm surrendered to that. Um, so that was a big deal. And then off the back of that, I, I, and really learning about this idea of upgrading to permission, I discovered that I had to create a writing avatar. I had to become the writer, not just do something a writer would do. And so what made most sense to me was a tormented artist kind of writer and Ernest Hemingway, um, you know, just the wrestle, just the, you're birthing something of great meaning and substance. It's hard. And I was okay with that. And so. Uh, yeah, in the writing of Unhindered, I put on five kilos, got dandruff, you know, had coffee cups all through the thing. I hey, I'll changed take my clothes once a week. I'll take dandruff over losing it. That's <laughs> yeah, right. Sure. My, um, mine, mine starts shedding. You get that's what happens for me. That's such an interesting so, frame. That's that, so one. That podcast is a is a golden podcast between Tim and, it, and Jerry. Really. There and Jerry's so so profound there's this there's this newsletter called six at six by billy oppenheimer billy oppenheimer's the the researcher for ryan holiday uh who's the stoic um and he has this great and he's always quoting jerry on the on his process of writing and i'm gonna interject with with a with a question here that has come recently through another great pod podcaster chris williams or williamson modern wisdom podcast and he said he asked himself what does this look like in his case podcasting in your case writing if i'm to go pro if i'm going pro what does this look like from diet to consistency to how i approach my day and i mean you're a pro and and you've reframed the language of pro but what else changes for you well, I like that language, and I am a fan of Stephen Pressfield, but I, I think his work is, I class it as tragic because he's, he also on Tim Ferriss's podcast, Tim says that his book, uh, The War of Art, is the greatest book ever written for creatives, and I think that's a tragedy also because Stephen very vocally still says it is a battle. He fights against himself to write. He still has to force himself to the pages and the battle of all the internal stuff. And so there is a war going on when he writes. Um, now, although I find writing very difficult, I, there is no war. Like that, that is a disaster. Um, so I, I liken it to a marathon. I, you know, I've run eight marathons and the process of going in for a marathon, you know, you're about to suffer. You know, you're going to suffer greatly in the 16 weeks, 16 week training block. Um, but it's something that, you know, it's going to be worth it. And you know, the process of, of getting your body into shape is going to be a wonderful experience, no matter how hard it is. And so it feels like the writing process is three marathons. The first of which is just the, to get it to draft one. And so I find I need a period of intensity and a period where it's the number one focus. And so, um, so it looks like for me getting up before dawn, uh, my writing for this season was all done in the car, which was 
I just had to, I had to get out. I had to see the sunrise. I had to be there before the sun. I had to get a coffee from a coffee shop on the way, go park on a hill and um, just needed that space. And I don't know why, but that was what worked. And I, as soon as I find something that works, well, great. I, I'm in the game. And then the ritual of that every morning and just that process. So two hours to start the day just in and and you know the difficulty of wrestling with ideas but but I feel like I had full permission from myself to go write write this book Jamin this is this is your calling this is the work to do so go write the book and go wrestle with it and go surrender to it and it'll, it'll be very difficult but very meaningful so uh yeah and then to come home and change gear because I in other seasons I've been able to have the luxury of just being a writer while I've done the whole thing but I'm playing multiple games at the same time. So um, this this season I haven't put on five kilos and got dandruff. I've, you know, condensed my ride into the start of the day and then changed Jamin's and tidied myself up and gone and played other games. So, yeah, that's that's this process for this book. Did Early you feel – In the car. That, yeah, that's, that's akin to uh, – I was just listening to Morgan Housel on uh, – on Ferris, and he was talking about he's he's a business writer, he's award winning business writer, writes for the Wall Street Journal. Um, but his best selling book was Psychology of Mind. He's coming out with another book now, and he talked about that two things. And I want to talk about your first draft process because he had said that he doesn't recommend this for other writers, but his first draft process was actually the last draft, in other words he would belabor every sentence in the first draft to the point in which it, it whereas I write, bleh, you know, get it, get it out and then refine. Whereas he tries to really nail it. And what he says in that process is he, he writes it and then he got motion is his sort of medicine to help refine it. So he'll write it. He'll go walk the dog. He'll do the dishes. He'll do something to, to come back to that same sentence until it's good. And then the paragraph or great. And the paragraph is great. And he's trying to be as close to done as he can on that first draft, which again, he doesn't recommend, but are you, I guess the second part of this question too, is like, cause you're breaking, you're saying two, two hours, but I have found it's, it's, I can't turn off the brain after I've started writing. Cause then all of a sudden I, I start rewriting the rest of the day and I find it so hard. If I've dedicated that morning to, a, you know, to a, a, the pages to not stop going back to those pages for the rest of the day. And I'm in my notes and I'm in my whatever, and I've got pieces of paper. Like, so how is that first draft for you? Is it, is it a pretty solid first draft? Is it just get it done? And how are you dealing with that constant, once you've opened up the idea flow, just, just channeling and organizing those things. So they get on the page the next day. Mm. Well, I kind of feel like I'm writing precisely when I write, yeah. and I feel like my first draft is very tidy, <clears throat> uh, but it's not. That That is never the case. When I submit it for editing, it's always a dog's breakfast, <laughs> and it makes no sense, and it's upside down, and I'm always horribly gutted by the feedback every round of editing because I thought I got it right. Um, so the process is brutally going back and rethinking and putting myself in the shoes of my readers to kind of go, okay, what am, what are they missing? What am I not telling them? So, uh, yeah, it's it's very rough and and repetitive. But I, I do find I'm able to 
park it, although not completely because, you know, my whole world is these concepts. So the conversations I'm having as coach um, throughout the day are still these concepts I'm writing about and I'm embodying these concepts that I'm writing about and coaching about. So I don't get a break from the content, but I find I'm, I'm able to leave the pages in the car and and not go back. Uh, except if I have a, a flash of inspiration, I'll jot it down somewhere. But um, by and large, I'm able to separate the writing from the rest of the games. Which is which is the going pro thing, right? I mean, these as a professional, you do have to be able to separate. You do have to be able to handle, you know, you got to play the basketball, you got to play the game of basketball and be fully present there or do the practice. But then you have your family, you have the media, you have your other projects. If you're, you know, so fortunate that part of your career and, and that's something I've always been so impressed with, with professionals is their ability to exit one thing and into the, and go into the other and, and just separate and be as best they can. I mean, that's a, that's a hard mm-hmm. challenge. I know I read an article once about the, the whole work from home thing created the problem of never stopping work. You go home, you're going to have dinner with your family, but because you didn't, there was no driving home, your commute home that mm-hmm. separates you from the work. Obviously, this is like a, a constant communication email phone problem that we still have, regardless of where your work is situated. But my my secret has always been the ice bath as the separation between okay. one idea to the next. It's, you know, the cold plunge has helped with that beyond all the other things it does. Is there any other things that you do that help with those separations from writing to client? Um, Do you have a ritual or routine that helps do that? The car is a great example of just writing in that one place and then leaving that. But for everything else you do. Um, So my wardrobe is how I think about that. So I, I, when I go into my wardrobe, every item of clothing is linked to a different game really. And so Uh, I, I dress strategically. So it's, kind of the phone box just to go in and who I, who do I need to be? How would I need to dress to be that person? So I'm quite deliberate about the clothes that I wear. I, I had a writing outfit that was just, um, you know, very practical, but it just, it anchored me to, I know who I am right now. And, what was the, and others will what, get to know who I am too. You got to tell me what the writing outfit was. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it was rough. Just a, <laughs> you know, a black hoodie. Yeah. Um, you're sitting in a yeah. car parked on a hill in a black hoodie, hood over. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Uh, um, in a bit of it, yeah, in in a bit of a rough part of town too. Like there was often, as the dawn would break, there was often some scuffles breaking out in the, in the neighbourhood and kids being berated for not getting ready for school. And there was always a bit of action happening. But I just that was the the closest hill I could find, and. Uh, <laughs> It just timed well to get my coffee, to get there, to have woken up. So that that was good enough. I appreciate so much that both of those tidbits, the, the tidbit about the outfits and the tidbit about finding that spot. What makes you that way? Like how, how what makes you the way that you are? Because it's not, because <laughs> it's not what you just described is not very, I don't want to use the word normal. That's a terrible word. I don't know anybody who is quite so thoughtful about these types of things, or I don't know many people as you are. So how do you, how do you come there to well, be this way? 
it does it does really relate to this idea of permission and and working with myself so i'll I'll explain that when when you give me the chance not to preempt that but but it is i I am very pragmatic primarily is how I got here i am i am I am pragmatic I am most interested in what works and could it work better and so that's my guiding principle so i I must do the work I was born to do. And and so I've tried fighting against myself to do that, and it is a very ineffective way to do the work. So I've discovered that there is a far better way, and to work with myself uh, is not only more sustainable but more beautiful, and I do better work. And so the the understanding of how does that happen, what would have to happen internally, what conditions would have to be satisfied, and so being thought through around who I'm being uh, and the game that I'm playing are, are two key components of the upgrade required. So just through a process of discovery in my own work, I've come to understand the importance of those pieces. And in the moment they work, well, great, I won't swap them. Like I'll, I'll if it works and I can use it, then I will instantly from that moment. That's now part of my regime. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that you're a different person before and after each book that you've written. And what I mean by that is the things that you're writing about, the lessons that you're you're trying to teach. And I imagine as it is for me, I become one of the reasons I do write is so that I can understand my own thoughts better. I, you know, by by the the simple practice of putting them into a sentence or a paragraph or a chapter and, and being concise and building a model around it. But I have admittedly found that sometimes when I'm done writing a book, I'm almost frustrated with the material. Like, I'm almost like, Ugh, I'm done. I'm done with this topic as opposed to I now embrace this topic so fully and, and holistically. Of course, later you, you get to come back to it. But do you find that you're living that material in a, in a more um, deliberate way after you've written it into the book? Versus before, um, well, I think, I think so. Like for un- for unhindered, that was a model that I had road tested so often and so frequently with clients about the seven central practices for overcoming insecurity. So I kind of wrote it, having already completely refined it, and I was sure I had it right. So all the refining of thinking had already happened, and so I was able to write it clearly off the back of that. And and so I don't feel that changed my embodiment of it really much at all. It was already very tight and continued to be tight afterwards. But this book has definitely changed me through the writing. This book I've I have changed my mind a couple of times. I thought I thought I knew what I thought about a subject. Mm-hmm. And as I wrote about it and wrestled with it, I I realized that I didn't know. And the process of discovery was dynamic and beautiful. So yeah, this one has, has definitely been uh, a much more vibrant writing process and a transformational one, and and because this is a, a model that I haven't like it's it's the best of my thinking, all the the culmination of all my work to this point. But it's a model that's only just evolved in my brain. So I'm writing about it as I'm learning for myself and as I'm applying it to coaches, uh, sorry to clients. So I think that's why there was much more. Uh, fluidity in the process and uh, a really vibrant learning experience. Do you like changing your mind? <laughs> um, I know it's a big question. Well, 
I, I had to change my mind about something the other day and I didn't like it at all. <laughs> oh, I, I, maybe I shouldn't be laughing. I don't know what the thing is. I just, I, the way you said uh, it, it well, reminds me of me being like, but, damn it, damn it, I don't like, you know. I, I think I hold things really tightly and loosely at the same time. Um, I, I like the idea of midlife about doubling down on things. Mm-hmm. Um, I like you've had a whole bunch of experience in your own skin. You've run a whole bunch of experiments. So if ever you knew what you knew, now would be the time to double down on what you know. Yeah. So so I like getting clear and being sure about what I'm sure about. And so certainty. And and I think um, I went through a process of having these dreams. I'd wake up in the middle of the night uh, with no pants on um, in my dream. And it was this recurring dream. I'd show up to something important. I thought I was totally prepared. Then I'm delivering a keynote or I'm running a client session and I looked and I got no pants on. Um, and it was so embarrassing. And it, this, this rep- repetition, a couple of times a week, I'll be dreaming having no pants on. And I, I, I love that, that if it's a pattern, surely my unconscious is trying to tell me something there. And so the moral of that story was, Hey, Jamin, you keep showing up like the boy. You keep showing up like you are not prepared. You keep showing up like you do not know what you know, like the student. So the message was, know what you know. You are a teacher, not a student. So show up with your big boy pants on and know what you know. And so that that changed my language with myself. It changed my levels of certainty, and it changed the way that I shared my content. Um, And I I put my big boy pants on and was very certain about a bunch of things that previously I'd I'd tried to be humble about and say, well, maybe. It's like, no, I actually know. This is what I know. Let me tell you what I know. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I live with a high level of certainty about a bunch of things until such time as without a doubt I am proven to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's never fun. It, it, it's a horrible experience to be all in with something and so committed and publicly committed to something and then to have found I've made a mistake. There, this is, there's a better way of thinking about this. And so I accept that and I change it as quickly as I can um, and I do change it. I, I, I will never cling to something that I don't believe in and is wrong. I, I won't. I, I couldn't. I wouldn't dare hang on to something that I know is not right just for the sake of my ego or what I've said in the past. I do change. Have clinged at one point in your life? Is that a to something even if you were found to be wrong? Would you've dug those heels in? I don't. Oh boy. No, I, I know that's true for me. So in my early twenties, mm. I was very egoic in my views, and that and the world kind of beat beat that out of me with a whole Mm. host of wrongness, (laughs) a steady stream of being wrong for about 15 years, kind (laughs) of. I I think I was probably more on the other side. I think I was more on the back foot. So more inclined to already assume I was wrong. Yeah. So to be unsure of myself. So the challenge was to be sure. And that was much harder. And then, uh, after then finding out how to be sure or then realizing, and still you can be wrong again and you're going to have to back down and change your mind at certain times. How did you come to interpret dreams? Um, is that, was that something that was comfortable? Was this something somebody encouraged you to explore when you were having these dreams? Um, well, I, I do not Google dreams. I don't read dream interpretation books because I, again, very pragmatically, just go, well, if there is a pattern, then there must be a reason. There must be an intention. There must be some 
some point to this mm-hmm. and my unconscious has a message. And so I just go, what if I asked? What if rather than assuming, uh, I just asked? Mm-hmm. That seems like a, a logical thing to do. And so I do. And and I run run the idea that the only thing that can get in the way of listening is willingness. Like there, I, I, I kind of a big part of my coaching model is rapport with self, is learning to open lines of communication, is is listening. And it's a difficult thing to do. It, it's difficult listening to another person, let alone listening to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm convinced the only thing that can get in the way of that is willingness. So if you want to understand, you can. Mm-hmm. There is no caveats to that. And so there have been times in my life where I've banged on about how ready I was to listen. I'm, I'm ready. I'm listening. Why won't you talk to me? I'm here. I'm listening. Why won't you tell me what this is about? This is so frustrating. I'm listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but the point is always, no, you're not listening. You're pretending to listen. You are afraid of what you're about to hear. You don't want to hear. You'd prefer not to know. You're afraid. If you if you actually were going to hear what this is about, it's going to require something of you that you don't think you're ready for or think you can't do. So I'll just wait until you're actually ready. And as soon as you're actually ready, then you'll know. And so I just run that um, and I hold to that. And so, yeah, I just think, cool, there's a pattern. So it, it must be knowable. As soon as I'm actually ready to know what that's about, I will. And that's my experience. That reminds me of real key, right? Um, you know, live, live the questions. I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, live the questions until one day you, you can essentially live into the answers of those questions. And, and, and that speaks to the process of life. And, and there are some things in which I was reading this book. It was, it was called the, um, Women Who Run With Wolves. And it's a book about, you know, it's a Jungian spiritual teacher talking about the feminine and the feminine journey into becoming the wild woman, right? Embracing the, the wild woman archetype. And she talks about essentially knowing too much at certain points makes us too old at, at certain points, right? And, and so there's a time and place to learn the things that we need to learn when we're ready, right? And, uh, there's a beauty to that patience. You know, there's a presence to that patience that I have none of. <laughs> you know, I'm in- entirely frustrated. And, and I think this is a good segue into the midlife, the midlife, you know, the ethos of our talk here today. And, and it, it's so relevant that you brought this up because I guess I'm at that point and I've been noticing for myself a lot more anger than I've ever had about things not working out the way I want them to work out in the time frame that I want them to work out. You know, wanting, as I, as I endeavor into new projects and film and television, new books, and I want, I want one thing and it's not happening and I, and I get very myopic and I get more angry than I used to. And I was reading this, this quote just last night. I have all these notes and I, and I was, I was thinking about our talk and I was flipping through things and this came up and it, and I'll read it to you and you can, you know, you can tell me if this is the, this is where we are. It, it says, you know, we still have the chaos within us uh, to give birth to a dancing star, but the, that chaos diminishes in us as the world is rationalized, classified and codified as comfort becomes our goal. As life is treated like a balance sheet, as we mark up the cost of everything and value, nothing Nietzsche, Nietzsche warned that the soil will only be fertile for so long 
for man to plant the seed of his highest hopes. And I was talking with my wife after I read that and I said, I, f- I feel like that's what's happening is like the seed, the fertile soil of my youth where all my hopes were big and bright is drying up. And as I get older and the problems and the challenges of adulthood and children and, and all these responsibilities weigh on me. And that's unfortunately been manifesting as a lot of anger and frustration or frustration manifesting as anger for me that I don't like, but I am sitting with it and, and trying to understand it. And so maybe we can use that um, to a jumping off point to the inspiration behind your new book. What was it in your life that made you feel like you needed to write this book? Um, I, I assume for people like me. <laughs> well, I love patterns and I love the predictable nature of human behavior. And you know, my first book, Elegantly Simple Solutions to Complex People Problems, my first real book, we'll call it, um, was just this idea that people imagine their problems are complicated and unique and they're just they're not. We all go through the same kinds of things, but just in different ways. So if, if you can zoom out um, and observe patterns, then that's very useful for then understanding how things work. So just the engineering brain, the systems thinking. So, um, you know, primarily I observe people. I, I only coach midlifers because uh, I think Mark Manson's quote, all change is preceded by being wrong about something. Mm-hmm. So young people are not ready to be wrong. And and by and large, it's too costly to be wrong when you're old. So midlife is the time for being wrong. And it opens a window for change. And so some ambitious midlifers are my people and I would watch them continually be battling against themselves to try and solve problems. And and I just loved the um the predictable nature of that battle and and loved what happened if I could help them understand what the point of that battle was so that they could end the war and, and make peace. So, um, you know, definitely my own experience of that was very formative, but primarily watching people suffer and not knowing why is what motivates me. I, I feel very compelled to do what I can to end unnecessary suffering. And some of the best people in the world are the ambitious midlifers. They're trying to do meaningful work and yet they're suffering because they've not understood how they could upgrade. Um, and they're so, suffering because they're battling themselves. They're, battling- they're suffering because they're battling themselves and and they haven't understood that their unconscious has leverage against them now. So um, the, I love the idea that marriage is the metaphor when, and that's assuming that you've had a, you've had a semi-decent experience of marriage somewhere in your experience. Not everyone has had that. So that is a big statement. I understand, but um, marriage being, the other relationship is most likely to represent intimacy and closeness. You pick one person out of all the people in the world to share your life with. So you'd imagine that at some point what you've shared with that one person is the pinnacle of your human interactions with anyone. So so that is the metaphor of what it's the closest thing to a deep and intimate relationship with yourself. And so so there are times in a marriage relationship where, like this book that I've written, Leverage, how to change the people you love for all the right reasons and get the relationships you deserve. 
like it's a confronting title and it's been a difficult book to market because of that. You know, imagine coming home with that book under your arm and your partner says, oh, what do you got there, darling? Not oh, nothing. <laughs> Not inferring <laughs> anything here. Yeah, and so, um, but the point is, you know, don't try and change the one you love is the single worst piece of relationship advice ever given in the history of relationships. Um, if you don't change the one you love, uh, the right reason for the right, you know, at, at the right time for the right reasons or the right tools, they'll annoy the shit out of you and you'll end up hating them. Mm-hmm. You know, the law of entropy says that all systems move toward decay. They deteriorate over time. They don't stay good. They get polluted. You must put energy back into that system. That That is a change process. And so, uh-huh. so there comes a time where it's very appropriate in a marriage situation for one partner to actually demand change, to say, hey, listen, the way you talk to me, the way we relate to each other, this situation that keeps happening, it's actually not working for me. And I know I've said that a bunch of times, but but right now I cannot have it happen ever again. And then for the partner to go, okay, or what? And for the other partner to have considered the or what, to go, well, um, this is not me threatening you. This is not me being childish. This is me saying the, the consequences. If this does not change, here's what happens next. And I am actually within my confidence and my ability to to help you uh, have those consequences if you would like them. But he, but I cannot have this happen ever again. And here's what will happen next. Like that's leverage. That's that's saying okay, I have some power to increase pain in your world to do the thing that you said you were going to do, but you haven't done yet. So I love that the unconscious has that same leverage in the midlife season because. In, in our younger, like in the 20s, you don't need much self-awareness to succeed in your 20s. You're just doing whatever you want. You're dominating with your conscious mind. You don't have to listen to yourself. You don't have to be sustainable. You just drive on with anything and, and just be ego-driven, be dominant. But I love that as your energy dwindles, you don't have energy to waste anymore. Your unconscious goes, now's my time to get your attention and to use leverage against you to go, this is not working for me. The way you treat me is not working for me and I will not participate any longer. So if you want to be this crazy person, always misunderstanding me, always dominating, never listening, I will stop you. I will pull fuses out. I I will create sickness. I will take away energy. I will cloud your imagination. I will taunt you with dreams. I have the ability to increase pain until you're ready to listen. So I just I love that as the starting point for the midlife and just watching it happen in my own life, watching the handbrake come on, my unconscious going, no, we're not going to do it like that, Jam. we're not. I am now actively resisting your progress. So you can keep fighting against me if you like, but you won't win. Um, I love it when my wife says that to me, like, <laughs> I'm serious. So you don't actually want to fight against me on this. You want to listen. This is going to get bad if you do not, if you're not prepared to listen. So um, that was, well, I did a lot of talking. No, just then. that was fantastic. And I think what you said, everybody needs to hear. I thought it was beautifully framed and uh, I'm patting myself on the back for saying you're a clear and concise communicator because you just proved my point. <laughs> and I want to, so before we go to the conscious, our you know, our unconscious um, using the leverage against us to move us in the right direction from our bad behaviors. Going back to your book about 
this in a relationship, in a marital relationship, and you, you making the comment that this is, this is a hard thing to sell. And it is a hard thing to sell, but it's so interesting that I just heard, I was just listening to a podcast between Sadia Khan, who is a sort of one of the big relationship gurus on online these days. Fantastic. Very controversial, um, very traditional viewpoints. And Tom Bilio, who has a, you know, one of a very big podcast, and they were talking about this exact thing. And the reference that he gave in his own life of punishing bad, punishing behavior he didn't like. And he said as well, this is, nobody's going to want to hear this. There's, there's almost no way to talk about this without pissing people off in some way or getting people's, you know, guard up. He's, he said, you cannot reward the behavior in a relationship that you do not like, does not serve this relationship. And the, and the example he gave was hypothetical. He gave a hypothetical. So he, 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 he eked out of the, <laughs> a little bit to the, sure, yeah. but the example he gave was, he said, if my wife, if I didn't like who my wife was when she was drinking, um, you know, whatever, blackout drunk or just overly handsy with everybody, whatever the case may be. I don't like her behavior when she's drinking. What I can tell her is that I will no longer go out with you while you're drinking. I'm not going to stop you from drinking. I'm not going to leave you per se. I'm not going to reward that behavior and I'm going to punish it by removal of my time with you if you choose to do that behavior. And then the the choice goes to them. Well, I value my time with this person. So I want, you know, and they have to make that conscious choice. But that's what, when he talks about the leverage, I mean, th- those are the levers that he, you know, he, he was talking, when you talk about leverage, those are the levers that he's pulling in this case of, I'm not going to, I'm not going to encourage that behavior. I'm there's go, there's going to be a consequence and it's not like go to your room. It's, Mm. it's, I'm not going to support that. I'm not going to be part of that part of your world. I still love you. I'm not going to be part of that. And these are the, these are the hard conversations and the hard choices that we have to make to make a relationship work. And relationships are really struggling. They're, you know, especially, Mm. you know, with the younger generations these days, you know, they live in a world that's got very bad incentives and this may play into your, your midlife uh, the topics that you, you cover in your book, the idea that we're, I think Sam Harris talks a lot about, you know, bad incentives are, are sort of the worst thing and they're everywhere. And, and this goes from distractions to in the relationship world. It's very easy to just have an escort or have porn or go on to Tinder. And therefore it's harder to punish or find leverage in your relationship because there's so many more incentives to just take the easy route out as opposed to lean in to how do we make this thing so strong between us where there's, where there's so many shared values and there's so much truth being spoken and we're stepping up to the challenge that we get to have something big and beautiful and deep and enduring because of, of those hard choices. So I, I commend you for writing that book. Um, I, I commend you for being brave enough to tackle that topic, which is not easy to do um, to communicate on. And uh, you know, maybe get some, listen to that podcast and see if there's any points you can pull up for your marketing leverage. But let's then, let's, unless you want to add anything there, let's digress or pivot back to how this relationship with yourself and your, your consciousness and, you know, the, 
as we enter midlife, there's sort of this accumulation and this weight of all the things that we've acquired, uh, acquired, excuse me, friends and, you know, failures and emotions and hurts. And this idea that like, you know, our better years are behind us and, and, and our opportunities are more limited in front of us. And there's all this negative self-talk that's baked into that consciousness or unconsciousness that's being fired at us. How do we turn the corner on that relationship in midlife so that we can achieve the things that we still want, maybe still want to achieve? Well, let me just say one last thing about the leverage concept as it relates to that answer, because um, I I say that basically the game of, of leverage is the clean space game. So when you fall in love with someone, the space between you is clean. There's nothing, there's no pollutants. You're awesome. They're cute. You're funny. They're outstanding. Like it's, it's all beer and skittles. It's it's every you know dolphins and rainbows, and surface. people assume it's going to stay like that. What's that? It's surface. surface. Well, not even surface. surface. Like it's still you can have a deep connection, an instant rapport, and a and a real intimacy with someone that you fall in love with. It can go very deep, very quick. The point is that you haven't had time to ruin it yet, mm-hmm. and and so. LG Electronics did a study. I don't know why they commissioned the study, but they interviewed 2,000 UK couples and they found that one in three people wake up beside the single most annoying person they know. And so it's hilarious because (laughs) obviously no one starts out going into the marketplace to find the the most annoying person to have as their their soulmate. Um, But nevertheless, most relationships descend into that kind of chaos and it's all little things. It's all little things that agitate and annoy and pollute the space. And so they don't know how to clean the space. So so I just say the space that Catherine and I play, we've been married for 25 years, we play the clean space game. We we understood the, the space started out clean, but how does anyone keep it clean? And what do you do if it gets polluted? How do you reclaim that space? So I think um, that is a great game to play. I love that game and, and it, it's an extraordinary experience to wake up in the morning to look her in the eyes and to go after 25 years, the space is clean. Like there is nothing between us. There is nothing in the way. There is an open, clean space. Like that to me, I'm not sure if there's anything more rewarding or more beautiful to have happen to a human being than than that kind of cleanliness. So I think that's the metaphor in terms of what you're looking for in your relationship with yourself, a clean space. And if you have a clean space in your relationship with yourself, what is possible in the world, what is possible in your ability to achieve and perform and play is absolutely exquisite. And so I think um, at some point in, in, like I wrote the leverage book for, for the person who's willing to go first because two people are never ready for change at the same time. Mm-hmm. So one one person in a relationship is more agitated, more unsettled, more unhappy, more upset has a lower pain threshold or more ambitious about what's possible. And so this is a book for the people who are willing to go first, to go, you want to play this game, you better play by the rules that you're going to get smacked and spat out the back. If you go in with the wrong tools at the wrong time for the wrong reasons and try and change your partner, um, not only will they jump on you, so will the world, and you'll have to retreat with your tail between your legs. So get ready to play this game properly and um, to play it to win. And so, so I then back to the relationship with yourself. So I would say in every case, your unconscious is the person willing to go first in cleaning the space. 
and your unconscious has said, listen, I've waited. I've waited patiently for 20 years while you were a crazy person. You, you've constantly directed your best energy against me. Like that is self-discipline. Just think about that for a moment. You treated another person like that. You don't trust them. You don't like them. You can never be relaxed, relaxed around them. You're micromanaging them. You're trying to get the best out of them by constantly hovering over them, berating them, judging them forcing them, fighting them. Like, do you think there'd be resentment in that relationship? Mm-hmm. Um, of course. So so the unconscious says, I'm done. I am, I am done being the villain in this story, being misunderstood, being maligned, being uh, sidelined. And so um, whether you're ready for change or not, I don't care. Now it's my only chance, my, my best chance, my only chance to get your attention and for the right reasons at the right time, the right tools, demand a better relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, probably my favorite line in the leverage book is in the integrity chapter. So I find that so often couples get to a certain point where they want to fight for change. They think there's an important subject to address. They try and address it, but then the pushback comes, then the gaslighting starts, then the defense begins, and they feel undermined. They feel weird about saying this to their partner and who are they to be demanding change? And then the spotlights turn back on them when they crumble because there's a lack of integrity in their own self and weak points and they must retreat. So I think your job is to go first if you're doing this in your relationship and to come from a place of integrity where you're not asking your partner to do something you haven't already done yourself. And then when the pushback comes, you're able to say, and and this is the line, um, hey, hang on a minute, like this is very difficult for me to say this, but, but don't. Don't for a moment believe this is not the best of me speaking to the best of you for all the best reasons. So I'm not going anywhere, by the way. Like you can't bully me off the turf. You can't call me selfish or greedy or arrogant. This is the best of me talking to the best of you for the best reasons. That's so I think that's a big deal when when a person realizes the resistance they're feeling. So Stephen Pressfield says he calls it the resistance with the capital the and the capital R. And it's like it's almost like another person. And every time, if you use that language of the unconscious, I promise you it's rolling its eyes against you going, for fuck's sake, like, what what do you mean? Like, you have misunderstood. I'm not your enemy. I'm trying to get your attention. You're a crazy person. You're trying to dominate with 10% of the of the, of the 100% available. Can you just listen? <laughs> like, your, your setup's not safe. There's a whole bunch of craziness. I'm just trying to get your attention to improve. So... Um, when a person realizes that resistance is love, then it changes everything. They're like, oh, right, what? Like there's a, there's a loving message here? Yeah, yeah, it's like a safety officer's come on site to, to a workplace, hit the emergency shutdown button and said, listen, you guys are out of control. This blade's about to, vib- about to vibrate loose. This floorboard's cracked. This lead's about to short. Someone's going to die here. You're all so focused on productivity and profitability, forge forward, but this setup's not safe. And you might think I'm your enemy for stopping you, but I'm not your enemy. Like your success must be safe. So satisfy the conditions on this clipboard of the things that are not safe and we'll get back to work. Mm -hmm. So I think you're in the, in the midlife season, your unconscious kind of realizes there's this window of opportunity to get your attention and to go hard at, at, stopping you so that you'll actually have the conversation. And most people, the tragedy is most people don't understand and they keep fighting against and they then they double down on this belief there's an enemy inside them. 
Yeah. And they keep going harder and harder and harder and end up like Stephen Pressfield, who's well advanced in his years, still terrified, still fighting against himself to try and achieve. And so I don't think he's done his best work, by the way. I don't think <laughs> we've seen – I don't – I think well, he's uh, – I mean, you're going – this is so fascinating to me. And, and so a few things – and, and and maybe we'll have to repeat them. But one, you know, I want to know what that looked like for you. So when when your consciousness and consciousness, et cetera, was, um, was screaming at you, mm-hmm. hey, you know, all of these things aren't working. We need to clean the space and then we can get back at that. I think it would be very helpful to understand from a very personal level, based on whatever you're willing to share, what that looked like and how you addressed that. And then the second thing, which we'll get to after is, you know, this is kind of antithetical to the prevailing tailwinds, not just of Pressfield, because he wrote that book a while back, but the the Goggins of the moment, mm-hmm. you know, this idea yes. of the Jocko, of, of yeah. embracing the hurt, embracing the struggle, and cultivating a relationship with it in a different way. And so let's let's start first with yours, and then we'll go into how your what you're teaching us and sharing with us, you know, contradicts and goes against what's very popular right now on YouTube and, and podcast, et cetera. Mm, yeah. I'd love to do that. <laughs> I, I do like David Goggins, but he's out of control. That guy. <laughs> he's a hard guy not to yeah. like, <laughs> but yeah, I guess hard guy not to like you. Right. Yeah. But just completely out of control and a dangerous voice, I would say. And lot there are still, yeah, the people with the largest platforms are still preaching um, discipline. And there are kind of a lot of ex-military, very macho, very masculine voices. Um, but, yeah, it's a tragedy. So, um, sure, let's get there. But to answer your question, how did this show up for me? Well, it is one and the same to kind of what I teach others because I'm non-negotiable about smoking what I'm selling. So it is out of the overflow of my own experience. So I'll start. Um, with with my experience and then give you some examples of how this works for others. So so I discovered that there are there were four things. If if my unconscious was the safety officer coming on site going, Jamin, your setup's not safe. Um and I'm not your enemy. So there are four conditions that will have to be satisfied before you can power up, before I'll give you access to motivation, clarity, energy, um, enthusiasm, inspiration. They're all here, got them all here, ready to go, but I will not give them to you. Uh, when your setup's not safe, because that would be a disaster. Why would I escalate your demise? Um, so the first one was, hey, Jamin, you don't trust me. And and that's not just me, that's everyone. I would say um, the, the dilemma of a broken relationship with self is there's been a betrayal in the past that's resulted in a complete breakdown of trust. And self-discipline energy is is what you do when you don't trust you don't. You manage a person you don't trust. You can't relax because if you relax, then they'll do something you don't want them to do. So that's the evidence. All the evidence you need that you don't trust yourself is that you discipline yourself. That's your your best attempt at getting yourself to do work is to fight against. Um, so this question of trust. Um, all right. How does if yeah? Good. I understand. I agree. There's a there's been a breakdown of trust, and and the messaging around that from my unconscious was, hey, Jamin, listen. If you don't trust yourself, um, like where is the safety in your world? Where is the safe place to retreat to? 
there's no safety internally. The world's going to fucking eat you alive. Like mm-hmm. there's no safety out there. So if there's no safety in here, you are in great danger. How are you supposed to amp, ramp up from here and uh, increase what you're trying to do if there's no nowhere to retreat into, no safety? You don't have your own back. So trust was number one. Um, but in thinking about that, like I love William Whitecloud, The Magician's Way. Have you read that book? I promise you I will. It's stunning. Um, but I disagree with William on one key thing because he would say the same. You must trust your nature, trust your natural ability to achieve the things that you desire. Um, but he kind of says, don't worry about going back into the past. You don't need to go back there. Just from here and now, trust. That's what you need to do. Just trust from here. That's that's your job. Um, but like if you and I had a falling out 10 years ago and we've reconciled with an attention, in, intention to work together in the future and we say, look, let's just not worry about what happened 10 years ago. Like let bygones be bygones. It is what it is. The past is the past. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Let's just work together from here. Like with all sincerity, we might think that that's what we want, but it is impossible to not be guarded toward each other. Mm-hmm. If we have not resolved the thing that happened, then unconsciously we imagine it could happen again. Yep. And so wisdom would say, I must protect myself from the future of that happening. Mm-hmm. So Ain't that do not truth? trust it. You see that everywhere. So, of course. Yeah. And so, um, and this old adage then, well, it takes time to rebuild trust. Bullshit. That, that's, that's a complete misunderstanding. Um, people don't trust because there's a, there's an awareness of danger. Like if you've hurt me in the past, yeah. then you're a dangerous person. So I don't trust you because there's danger. The only way I'm going to trust you is if we deal with the danger, if the danger is off the table. And so we're going to have to go back into that situation. And um, I'm convinced that it doesn't take time to rebuild trust. It just takes an effective apology, like a complete and thorough apology of which there are four stages, but it is possible in a moment to completely rebuild trust. So Does um, he give some context as to how he has come to the belief, the conclusion that uh, call it shadow work, call it, um, like you said, just a proper apology, call it our tribal nature of survival that says, Hey, this is, as you said, danger. We need, we have to deal with the danger because that's what I know. I felt pain. I felt wounded. I was, I was, I was Mm. hurt because of this experience in one way or another. Therefore, nope, can't go there again. So how does he, come to the, the the nope cut cut ties with the past present forward mm. no problem well he uses a golfing metaphor and it's very it's a wonderful metaphor um but he just talks about the fact that thoughts and feelings aren't real mm. so when you're in your thoughts and feelings you have the you can't trust yourself because you're in this fantasy world and Cause it your swing circle. You're so in your head that you can't possibly trust your ability to hit the shot. So he says, notice the thoughts and feelings, but then get out of that and then just pay attention to what you want and trust your natural ability to get it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I'm not, I mean, he's lived a very effective life. I'm not sure he's actually understood his own process because mm-hmm. um, it does seem like he trusts himself. So I, I think that's the challenge with these people who, yeah, have found a way to get something but haven't understood the way that they got it. 
mm-hmm. then to replicate it is impossible. Um, well, fair enough. Well, that, so, that, that's fair enough. So let's let's keep going because this is great stuff. So uh, the first part is 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 trust, mm. and then we're talking well, about sort of the, there's four parts to this. Yeah, just one more thing on the trust piece Please, because yeah. th- this question was was the real challenge for me in the writing, the hardest part because it was like, okay, well then, can I be trusted? If my unconscious is saying there's been a breakdown of trust, I need you to trust me again. The question is, well, can I actually be trusted? Is that is it possible to ever fully trust myself? And so I want to trust myself. It'd be good to trust myself, but I've done things in the past. I've got blood in my hands. If I do go back into my past, then there's moments that don't look good, as as everybody has. And so then then we go into this whole existential question, are we good or are we bad? Like, what is human nature? And so th- this was, I nearly got lost down these rabbit holes because, you know, I've come from church world as a church pastor. The, the answer to that question was, no, you, you can't trust yourself. That no, you actually there's a problem with your nature. It's called sin. You inherited that from Adam and Eve, who violated God's perfect intention, and you're born into sin. So don't trust yourself. Trust God. Escape yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, what I've been fascinated about is, you know, the Apostle Paul and Saint Augustine, two of the most prolific writers in the early church. Paul's work canonized in the Bible. Augustine later. But both of them observed themselves behaving in a way that was incongruent with their values as young men. Paul says, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. My own behavior bewilders me. So what am I to make of that? Well, the only logic is there's a part of me that is broken, bad, destructive, and I need rescuing from that. So thanks be to God who sent his son Jesus to rescue us and solve the problem of sin so if I find myself in Christ, then I have a new nature, and that's how I solve this problem. So I don't trust me, I trust Christ. And Augustine, the same, watched himself behave bad. He's a young man, has an awakening, reflects on that, thinks it's very bad. And, again, the only logic I have for why I did the things that I did is because I'm bad. Mm-hmm. And so I think those two men have not only influenced Western theology but Western psychology. It is, it is in every person's psyche that there is a badness to our nature and then i think it even causes people to misinterpret um, jung the shadow is the darkness and so if it's dark it must be bad whereas jung says it's not bad it's just the stuff you don't understand and you don't want to look at so you put it in the dark dark you can't see but not bad um, it'll eat your life if you don't look at it it'll become a dysfunction and a neurosis if you don't observe it but we're not bad. So anyway, the book uh, and in my own work, I had to plumb the depths of my own nature. Who am I really? Am I good or am I bad or am I neither? And I must know the answer to those questions if I'm ever going to solve the trust problem. How did you do that though? That's the question people are going to be, well, okay, how do I go into the depths of my nature? What's the, what's that first step? What's the, what does that look like? Well, I do love Anthony Robbins' six core needs model because I think it's his finest contribution to the personal development space by a long way. And I think what it does, it is it enables an objective review of our behavior. It, it separates behavior from intention. So it says, this is what you did. Yeah, absolutely. But what were you trying to achieve by what you did? And typically people think behavior is the most accurate indicator of character. So if I've done bad, I must be bad. 
if I stole, I am a thief. If I lied, I am a liar. But Robbins goes, well, no, every behavior is an attempt to meet needs and protect fears. So you've done bad, sure, but that doesn't make you bad. That just makes you needy. So I think that objectivity and the willing, the courage to review your own darkness, your, your own shadow, the things you have not understood and so you've put them behind you. I don't want to look at that. I did something bad and my only logic for when I did it was that's terrifying. I'm embarrassed by that. I think that means something really is wrong with me. I'll never look at it again. So you have to turn the lights on. You will have to look into the shadow. You'll have to go back into those experiences and review the data and you'll have to review the data objectively. And, you know, that's so much about the insecurity project work is that very piece is you got to go back. Um, people people ask me all the time, you know, Jamie, when you're a coach, you're forward focus. We're about success strategies. Surely we don't have to go back into the past. And I say the same thing every time, you know, that I never take a client back into the past except where it's necessary. And it's always bloody necessary. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, of course we've got to go back. Um, so yeah, my own my own review of all the pockets of embarrassment and shame and disappointment, every single one of them. You know, if I can't look at them, then I'll always be assuming the logic of why I did that is because I'm bad, um, or inadequate, or unworthy. And if I believe that, then I will never fully trust myself. Um, so having reviewed that data objectively, I can't find the data. There is no data that says I am bad. It's not there. Uh, what I discovered was that I am real, so I'm neither good nor bad, which was a very big surprise to me because I thought the answer would be, no, no, I'm inherently good, um, but I don't think I am. I just think I'm here, and I think that's what makes it so wonderful is that I I get to choose, I get to discover, I get to grow, I get to make better choices and choices that are more in line with what I want, mm-hmm. and I think that makes me an objectively good human being because I don't have to be good and I'm not afraid. I'm not trying to run away from being bad. I'm just here with the free choice to do whatever I'd like. And it turns out what I'd like is to do good. Good good is good works better than bad. So so much of what you're saying is hitting home in so many ways that I'm I'm almost uh as you're talking to me, I'm forgetting we're on a podcast and I'm kind of blowing up inside <laughs> right now. It's uh it's 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 beautiful and it's terrifying and it's and it's uh it's so relevant and I'm I'm trying to hold too much of it right now. It's every it's every client I've ever had, like they've got these things in their past. It's like I can't I can't look at this thing. I, I did something wrong about I don't it's horrible, I'm embarrassed. And I go, Yeah, cool, well, that's the thing. That's the only thing we're gonna talk about. And it's always like they're going to, you know, we're looking for weapons of mass destruction and one of these warehouses, they're going to find them. And when they find them, the game's up, it's over. And I'm always, because I don't care, I'm dispassionate. I'm like, where's the thing? Where's this evidence? Where's this pure data that you're a piece of shit? Where is it? I'd love to know the situation that the only possible way of interpreting it is you did that because you have no soul, you have no substance, you are a terrible human being. And they're always assuming well, this is it. Yeah, this is that time when I was five and I stole 50 cents from my mum's purse and got away with it and been embarrassed about it ever since. That's the one. Oh, that's the one? That's that's all you got? Um, and that's the one that's going to stack up under scrutiny the only possible logic about why you stole 50 cents was because you're a terrible human being. Um, mm-hmm. You got anything else? Uh, so everyone's got this stuff that's become bigger than Ben-Hur in their own experience, mm-hmm. but under scrutiny, 
it, it never holds up. But that's the human condition. We don't want to go back and look. We run and hide. We want to be good. We're just afraid we're not. And for fear of that not being good, ever being confirmed, we prefer to just stay in the dark. Thanks. I don't want to and know. Who, and who do you or who do you look at or what do you look at as the reason we hold it in the dark? Is it societal conditioning? Is it religious via you know just society and, and the definitions we get of good and bad there or is it the religious uh, upbringing and what they talk about with heaven and hell and good and bad and, and original sin like why would somebody have using the example you used as a as a nice clean simple example is hold on to such what when you say it out loud 20 years later it sounds so uh, I mean, it it, it, it doesn't. It sounds ridiculous that they would assume that that was bad, but something had told them that was bad when they did it. Whether they got the squeezy, sque- squeamish, or squeezy feeling in their stomach or whatever, you know, what, why why are they holding it? Who told them to hold that? Who didn't let them let that go twenty years before? Oh, I Your think view. it's all. <laughs> my view is it's all very practical and and actually has a really loving intent because because the way our brains crave certainty like we cannot survive with ambiguity we can't just go into an open field all the time and constantly review data objectively we don't have the space for that we have to refine we have to create maps we have to lock in certain things so that we can survive otherwise it'd be chaos and so the challenge of that is as sense making creatures we're making most of the sense about this stuff when we're a kid so we go I don't know, that seems like evidence, pure evidence that I'm shit. So I'm certain about that. And if I'm certain about that, then the most loving thing to do for myself would be to create a system where that does not ever reveal it ever again. So now I'll create a, a persona that is the least shit person I could be so that no one would ever guess that actually at my core I'm shit. So mm-hmm. I think it's just very practical. It's it's very logical. It's It's a loving intent. Every cell is hardwired for protection. And so if the danger is me, Great, and I know it's me because I'm certain and I've locked it away, then it would make sense to never look at that ever again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's that's it is very practical and, and structured. Um, so when you're looking at, at it for yourself, are you doing it, are you coaching yourself or do you have somebody there who helps you see your blind spots on that? Yeah, a, a bit of both. Like I've had some incredible coaches in my life over the years help me do the, the bulk of this and um, now I feel like I'm able to hold a space myself most of the time. There are still times I get stuck and, and must find someone who can have a clean space. Um, but, yeah, you need help to do this because you, you're so in your own experience of it. It's very hard to be objective about your own life. Yeah. So I think that's why I get help from someone who doesn't care about you. That's in you know in the seven essential practices, practice five, you must find help, and, and that, that person cannot care. Mm-hmm. So um, otherwise, it's too dangerous to reveal your deepest, darkest secrets and wounds to someone who has a vested interest in your life. Yeah. You'll implicate yourself. You can't you can't <laughs> turn all the lights on. You'll say something that upsets them, embarrasses you, embarrasses them. So I, I just love that clean coaching conversation with clients, and just say, "Hey, remember, I don't give a shit about you. I'm not losing any sleep. I'm not the one with the problem. I don't care. Like I don't. Whatever you say, I don't have an expectation. I don't, need to like you or dislike you i'm here to serve you so if you can't tell the truth here you can't tell the truth anywhere mm-hmm. so swing away what's this terrible thing you've done that is the that is the unequivocal 
pure evidence that, that you are a terrible human being. Where is it? Let's have a look. Mm-hmm. Better to know now than, um, <laughs> and confirm it. They may as well die. If it's true, it's game over, but let's have a look. Um, that's high-stake stuff. It's very terrifying, but at the same time, it's all built on a misunderstanding. That's the tragedy of the human experience. We misunderstand our own nature. We can't avoid it. No child escapes their childhood without misunderstanding, but then most adults never go back and review the data and so keep this this relationship with themselves that has no trust because they assume there's a danger within. Mm-hmm. So it's a very loving thing for your unconscious to draw your attention to that midlife and say, can we sort this shit out, please, because... You do know it's a misunderstanding, right? You do know I'm not actually who you think I am. So could we clean that up? So um, so that's number one. I need to, I need a minute, man. <laughs> 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 I am. I. This doesn't happen often uh, uh, on the podcast where I, I'm I, again, like I said, I'm losing myself as the host and just being pulled into. The privilege of being selfishly coached by you, even though you don't know you're doing it. Um, okay, number two. Number two. Yeah. Well, the second condition on the clipboard from the safety officers, a safety officer is, um, hey, Jamin, you keep showing up needy. So, like, uh, you are looking for others to meet your needs for certainty, variety, significance, love, contribution, growth, which... That's what a young person does because they don't have the capacity to meet their needs internally. But you're an adult now and you worked out how to dress yourself and feed yourself and drive a car and earn money. So it's actually your job to bring all those needs in house. And let's not say it's good, bad, right, wrong being needy. Let's just say it's really dangerous because if you need approval, acceptance, love, certainty from the world, you got to play the game their way. And at any moment you're in peril of them withholding the thing that you need. And then you have to bow to whatever it is they require of you. So, And you're telling me you want more energy and more focus to scale up now when you're precariously placed as it is? No way. Handbrake on. Let's deal with the neediness. So that's a really common one, obviously, but a very it makes sense, right? Like, yeah, that does seem very dangerous. Okay. What can be done around internalizing needs? And, you know, back to Tony Robbins' great work. Although, if Tony's listening, I assume Tony does listen to your podcast, Joel. Yeah, he, he um, called me. Good. Um, he texted me. He well, liked our Tony, last one. <laughs> great. I'd love to have a conversation with Tony about his six core needs because I think, I think he's sold out. I think he's he's now teaching them as a hierarchy because that is so much easier to market. But but if these six core needs are taught as a hierarchy. You get to keep your dysfunction. In fact, your your dysfunction is celebrated if these needs are taught as a hierarchy. Because you could say, "Oh, do you know what? Me? Yeah, I have a high need for significance than the average the average person. That's just me. That's who I am. That's my personality." Or another person says, oh, "I have a high need for certainty. That's who I am. That's why I play it safe. That's why I'm risk averse because I just need more certainty." N- no way. Like. No way in the world is that true. What you're saying is you have a felt need for those because you're more insecure and more anxious, but we all need just as much certainty. We all need just as much significance. Um, it's just how how effective has your strategy been to meet those? So I think the original version of this is all needs are being met at all times, and if you don't find a high-quality internal way to meet the need, you will suck up dirt. You'll you'll have to go out to the market and and play a game 
transact something to get what you need, to give away what you have in order to get what you require. That's a dangerous way to live. So I like that that's on the list of safety issues. That That's a very loving message to hear from your own conscious to go, yeah, um, you actually, it's your job to be the provider of certainty and significance and love. That's you. you. You have to work at how to deeply love and accept yourself, to be your own certainty, to factor in adult variety, to be the validator of your own existence. That's your job. And um, and you can just imagine how much safety that provides. If you are your own source, then cool, you can go play now. Like what's dangerous now out there? If, if I can go do whatever I want, whether you like me, whether you accept me, whether you think I'm doing the right thing, it doesn't really matter <laughs> then. As long as I think I'm doing the right thing, then it's all going to be okay. Okay. So same question. How did you, how did you deal with this within yourself? Were, were you feeling needy and looking for oh, things yeah. externally? And how did you reconcile this? Yeah. Um, so, so my rings are the, the simplest way to answer that. And back to marriage is a metaphor because like I got married at 19. And this ring is a visual anchor of the commitment I made to Catherine 25 years ago to be her guy. And I remember standing at the altar looking into her eyes, saying some pretty extreme things to her about my level of commitment with no evidence that I could do what I was what I was about to say. Like I couldn't point to a track record of 15 successful marriages in my past to, to justify why I could actually be the guy who can be there for her. But I realized that I think that's a contradiction. Fifteen successful marriages. Of course. (laughs) No, I got your point. Um, I'm just being silly. Um but what I realized was it wasn't required. What I what was required was wholeheartedness and intention. And so I heard myself say, Hey, listen, I know I can't point to proof that I've done this in the past, but I I've got you. I've got this, I've got us, I will be your guy from this moment. Um I'm all in. And I will love you better than anyone else could ever love you. And so I'm not on probation. I'm, she's not trialing me for the job. It's with this ring. I'm now her husband. I, th- I cross the threshold and everything's changed now. And there's no plan B. And so when I discovered the six core needs and realized that I had been outsourcing almost all of them, I realized no wonder I'm so anxious. No wonder I'm so needy. No wonder I'm so, in- so insecure. I've been looking for these needs to be met in all the wrong places. And and people are terrible at giving me what I need because they're too busy finding what they need. So I I was astonished that I hadn't understood it was my job. And and then I realized, but I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to be my own certainty. I don't know how to be my own significance. I don't know how to be my own source. And then I remembered that's not what's required. What's re- what is required is my wholeheartedness and my intention to be the guy. And so... So that very day I went out and bought this ring. I went, hey, Jamin, um, I've got you. I've got this. I've got us. I will be the guy that sees you, that loves you, that understands you, that validates you. You won't need to look outside ever again. And and I'll get better at this every day. Like I am, I, I want this job. I want to be the one that sees you, to deeply love and accept you. And so just that, that threshold moment rather than I'll wait and see and I'll – Maybe I can try and do this. It was like, do or do not do. There is no try. So when I realized it was my job, then I, I wanted the job and I went all in on, on being that guy and um, have so enjoyed finding delightful ways to resource myself 
with all six core needs because I, it's just a better deal. Mm. I do it so well. I do it better than anyone else could, and I love that I do it good. So I, yeah, it's um, it just creates such safety within to know that I've got my own back, especially off the back of trusting myself first. These go, these do go in order. I don't trust myself. How am I ever going to resource myself? But mm-hmm. trust, great. Now neediness, good. Move on to the next one. Keep going, brother. The third issue, and they're all addressed as safety concerns. So the third thing on the clipboard was, hey, Jamin, your gameplay sucks. Um, uh, okay, so the understanding was I'm playing um, the wrong games in the wrong way or sometimes the right games in the wrong way. But the point was um, if I was to gamify my life, the net effect is I'm playing a lot of games that I'm losing. And if I keep losing the games that I'm playing, I end up feeling like a loser and it confuses me about who I am and it, and it feels shit to lose. And so so the conversation my unconscious wanted to have was an audit of all the games I'm playing. You know, there's a bunch of games that I've just found myself caught up in. I've been invited to these games a long time ago and I didn't really know I was being invited and I'm playing games that other people have set up that are suited to them that have never been suited to me, games I don't enjoy. So... The, the challenge was to review those and exit the games that have never really suited me and to enter the games that do suit me and then to learn the bloody rules. So when I, when I thought about the structure of this, I realized that there are probably four different categories of games. You, you can be playing the wrong game the wrong way, uh, the wrong game the right way, the right game the wrong way, or the right game the right way. If you can, that's not too confusing and the best example I've got of that, just to make sense of it, is like I went to school with this guy, one of my one of my good mates, who didn't know what he wanted to do when he finished year twelve, which is common. He was floundering for a bit until his dad said, "Listen, look, you know, I was a, I was an accountant, and it worked well for me. You should go and study to become an accountant, and I reckon I could get you a job in my firm." And so my friend was like, "I don't like numbers. I don't like office work, but I don't know. I got nothing better on so." So went down that path. 20 years later, he's still working as an accountant. Now, he hates being an accountant and he's a shit accountant. Uh, can you imagine the cost to your soul to be playing the wrong game? That's not his game. It's, it was not a game suited to him and he's not good at it. Like, And you want more energy from yourself to play that game? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that is dangerous to find yourself there. Then the next version, the wrong game, the right way, is even slightly more dangerous because imagine that same person plays the game of being an accountant, even though it's not his game, but then gets good at it, mm-hmm. then gets rewarded by the game. Clients love him. He gets promoted within the firm. He's about to be made partner. It's like how to get out of that game once you're made partner. But still the cost to your soul, playing, getting up every morning, putting your pants on to go play the game, that's not your game. That's a disaster. And your unconscious is screaming at you to say, I can't be part of this. That's not you. So then the right game the wrong way. So I imagine, again, that same guy has a moment of clarity, realises that when he was at school, there were these two teachers that changed his life that were just so wholehearted about their teaching. They just carried this presence with them. When you walked into their room, everyone respected them and they shaped young men's hearts and minds. And, and this guy just knew deep in his heart that if he ever one day could replicate that, 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 that is actually what he wanted. So he's been pretending not to know that. 
and in a moment of clarity and courage realizes, you know what, I, I did actually want to be a high school teacher. Mm. And it's just terrified me. So so courageously quits his job as an accountant, goes back to, to school, gets his degree, gets given a teaching position in a high school and walks into the classroom on day one. But then he's got some year 10 students that eat him alive, that go, ha, ah, great, an easy target. And, and he has no control over the classroom. He's not teaching anyone. The other teachers are talking about him in the staff room. He goes home between, with his tail between his legs every day. So it's the right game, but he doesn't know how to play it. Mm-hmm. So then the final piece is if it's the right game, then learn the bloody rules. Learn that there are. it is a game, how to control teenagers. That's a game. And some people have worked out the rules of that game and play it properly. Other people don't know it's the game or don't know the rules. So to gamify mm-hmm. your life and to realize there's a whole bunch of games you're playing and if you don't know their games firstly, you're going to be getting smacked. And if you don't know the rules, even worse, you're going to be getting smacked. So just to think about um, all the areas of your life and and understand um, what's required of you to win the game. Mm-hmm. So it's very mm-hmm. practical, but if you can gamify, it just it's a stunning metaphor that helps you organise all the efforts you're playing and, uh, yeah, the implications are dramatic. It's a, it is a, it is a stunning metaphor and it's a great, it, it reminds me of as a, a blueprint for Joseph Campbell's follow your bliss in a way, you know, cause follow your bliss can be, and he does explain it at times, but it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a wishy-washy statement if in t- taken out of context, but to put that framework that you just explained around it, it hits home so hard for me. I'm sure for everybody listening. Uh, and, and ironically, I, I was just having a conversation with a friend a couple of days ago. He's been on the podcast. He's a teacher and a coach and um, of philosophy and wisdom and all these great things. He's got a book called Like a Finger Pointing to the Moon. And anyway, he had said, you know, the only there's very few people in your world, in your energetic, in your orbit that can help you understand those four things clearly because sometimes we we have a hard time understanding are we in the wrong game are we you know are we in the right game playing it the wrong way we can't see that and a coach like yourself can help you see that and and in terms of what's the first actionable step outside of getting a coach is like we don't go ask your mother or or somebody because hmm. everybody in your life they come at you from their own narrative and their own biases and they're telling you they're they're not giving you the answer from your from what you need they're giving the answer from what they think and there's very few people that can help you get clear on that so maybe as a point unless i've said it what is that first step according to you for someone to help uh, begin this 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 methodology yeah, that you just described well again to repeat they are in order so no point starting with game if you don't trust yourself and you're still needy You'll have no true north to even work that out. So if you trust yourself and you're not needy, you're more likely to be listening now. Um, but I just think just start start with assuming everything you're doing is actually a game. Just start there. Yeah. So, you know, you're not just writing a book. You're playing the game of being an author. And and it's not just one game because there's a game to write the book, then there's a game to publish the book, then there's a game to sell the book, <laughs> like then there's a game to use the book to build your business. So they're all different games and they have all very different rules. 
Yeah. So if you just think you're writing a book, you'll get smacked because there are some smart people out there who are writing far less quality, who play the game better, who will keep leapfrogging you, and that'll make you think your your writing's no good. When your writing was good all along, you just didn't know that it was a game. If you don't know how the game works, then you can't have a good experience of it. As soon as you know how the game works, you're in the game. Yeah. My my business, one of my business partners, he always says, listen, I I swim with sharks. I'm in the game that of swimming with sharks. And I never forget that. And I've learned how to swim with sharks. You know, that's that's it. And he's very he's, and he's like, Joel, you don't know how to do that. So either to your point, I have to learn or I have to have yes. him do the scuba diving for me. <laughs> you know. Right. So then so then that moves to the final piece, which is, hey, Jamin, you keep showing up as the wrong person. So you, you have an incongruent avatar. An avatar is the, the embodiment of a persona or an ideal. And so, you know, um, a simple example would be, you know that basketball is the right game for you, but you keep showing up wearing your netball skirt. And so it's just weird. It's like no one takes you seriously. You're not taking yourself seriously yet. So how are you supposed to have a good experience in the game if you don't look like you belong in the game. So I I also, like I've been a runner my whole life, similar to you. A bunch of my mates started cycling 10 years ago and I was late to the game and then thought, oh, yeah, okay, now's the time I'm going to be a cyclist. But I tried to be a cyclist as a runner. And so I tried to just own that identity, think I don't have to become like you to play your game. I'm fit, I'm fast already, so that'll be fine. But cycling is a group game. Running is an individual game. Yeah. And so you don't play by the rules. The group cast you out. So you don't look like a cyclist. You can't be a cyclist. <laughs> it's just not how, whether it should be like that or it shouldn't be like that. It is like that. So rip the bloody visor off your helmet, get the right sock length, shave your legs, get a proper bike, look like you belong, and then you can play the game. And so to think about the fun of that, you know, you want to be a keynote speaker, but you don't look like a keynote speaker. How are you supposed to win the game? You want to be a writer, but you haven't developed a writing persona. You don't have an outfit. You don't have a uniform that says, I am a writer now. You know, you want to be a coach. You don't like, you got to develop the persona who can win the game once you've decided about the right game. So it's the last and the simplest, but you got, you can't start there. You, that's off the back of it. And you have and to trust yourself to make the title altogether. I, I apologize for, um, I've done that a few times and there might be a bit of a lag, but the, uh, trusting yourself as you're learning the rules of the game, a beginner's mind comes to mind. The concept of, you know, you're going to begin foolish. That doesn't mean you're in the wrong game uh, so long right. as you can learn. And understanding the difference between being foolish and being in the wrong game versus being foolish, being in the right game, but knowing that you can learn those pieces. Exactly right. But it's the be do have model. Once you learn it's the right game, you you can't then just think. Well, now now it's just a process of time. I'll I'll automatically win the game just because now I know the right game and I'll learn the rules. Because there's other people who've already been playing this game, and they have the power to exclude you. And so you actually have to show up on purpose. You have to like it's be do have. It's begin with the end in mind. You have to actually go first and show up as the person who already can play that game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a really essential part. And if you don't trust yourself, then you're going to find that's weird. And if you're needy, 
you're going to be waiting for someone else to say you have permission to play that game. Um, and so those two must be cleared first. But if you're resourcing yourself, you trust yourself, and this is your game, we'll then dress like you belong and give yourself permission to go play that game. And so you get all those four, and then the safety officer is like, this is incredible. Yeah, fa- fabulous. And power up, handbrake off, let's go play now. Not just permission to succeed, permission to play. And and then I think the funnest part of it, this is just because you're sold at this level doesn't mean you won't get stopped again. But every time you get stopped, future, every time there's some resistance, and it might be a physical resistance, you might get sick, there might be this weird health thing, there might be a lack of clarity, you might just be having these terrible dreams, it's a chance to go back to the drawing board have a conversation with the safety officer because it will only ever be one of these four things that's broken down. And so just narrowing the field of search is so useful for people because it speeds up the rate with which you can resolve this once you've understood the model. Yeah. And if I may add, you know, mentorship, it came to mind when you were talking about learning the rules of the game and finding a safe person in the game who has like a coach, like you said, they don't give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. They're there, you know, because if you're in the, it's not called a Peloton. What is it called when you're in a group of cyclists? Um, Yeah. The Peloton. I wasn't sure if that was just for like the races or if that was in general. So if you're in the Peloton, generally speaking, that's not your safe person may not be in there. Right. If you're in a company and you have investors, one of your investors is not, necessarily the safe person if you're the ceo founder as your mentor right it has they can't be vested in your 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 they have to assume they're trying to beat you if they're in the game yeah and i i want to digress back to one thing before we we go forward I, i know we have to we have to conclude here this has just been so fascinating for me but when you said it's these it's one of these four things and we talked about a little bit about how you know, if you look back and you almost always have to look back to find out what's the inhibiting thing. Mm. Is there one potential thing often that is causing all four of those to be blocked in for somebody in somebody's life? Does that make sense? Well, yes. So, so I would say they are, I are all four blocked for most people who've never conceptualized that, the resistance is love. So their best energy is against themselves. They've been David Goggins it and and just going harder and harder and harder and stealing from Peter to pay Paul using their best energy against themselves. So I think, yeah, if that's been your case, you'll have all four. So that general misunderstanding and assuming that self-discipline is your best strategy will be the thing that's causing you to have polluted the space. Once you can go, hang on a minute, that doesn't make sense if I was to treat another person like that, they would hate me. So, yeah, imagine that you have created such resentment within yourself by this strategy. It can't work. No matter how well it's worked in the first season, um, it cannot be the thing that creates success in the second season. So to come to terms with that then opens you to this idea that the resistance is love and then you can start the conversation. But, yeah, I think for all four to be on, it's just because you have no understanding that there could be a better way to treat yourself than flogging the shit out of you. That reminds me of your, well, you know, the, the, the quote, what get you, got you here won't get you there. And that reminds me of, of your, um, the unhindered and the insecurity project and looking at the arc of insecurity where there's a point yes. in which it serves you and there's a point in yes. which, you know, it becomes Absolutely. the Chinese finger cuffs, right? Like they, the struggle yep. keeps you trapped in. 
So let's let's talk about this as our a sort of a concluding piece of our our time together, which is the antithetical nature of struggle as a good thing. As you know, as David Dida would say, self-discipline doesn't mean self-suppression. It it doesn't mean that to be disciplined doesn't mean to be a martyr per se, right? But there's this martyrdom sort of glorified martyrdom that we we look at today as as the the capital R resistance that fuels success, fuels creativity. And what you're positing is that no, that is not the case. That is not the ticket to your freedom. So and there's and there's this romanticized version of of struggle, right? Like struggle makes everything beautiful. Like the seed has to struggle to grow and blossom. Like the strongest trees and the whatever and the hardest winds, whatever, you know, you know, get what I'm saying. So we have this sort of poetic and I always have had this poetic relationship with struggle and you're, you're bringing to, to the table a different a paradigm shift on that. So just, just do what you do best and tell me, tell me about how you're thinking about this now and how you hope people begin to think about this. So I think about that in the game. I think the best games are always the hardest ones, the games that have the most meaning, the most reward, the most joy are the most difficult games. So I, I am not fighting against myself to play the game. I have permission to play the game, and the game's hard. So, And and the struggle is all of those things that you just described, but it's still energy with yourself to go struggle, not energy against yourself. The struggle is... In the game, you're bringing your best energy to give yourself the best chance to win a difficult game. Mm-hmm. And like that, to do your best work, especially if it is your best work, it'll be against the flow of what most people are doing. So that'll be struggle. That'll be hard. But if you're not fighting against yourself in the process, then my goodness, it just cuts down so much of the unnecessary wasted energy. Um, so yeah, I love, love the struggle. I don't think it's all. It's all ease. I'm not looking for the easy path. I think that's a, a fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to be clear, the struggle's not inside, it's out. Right. I apologize for my misunderstanding of that um, as you were as you were describing it, and it's clear now. And the self-permission and the playfulness, it's born of this process of going through this upgrade, of going back and doing this work, then once you do that, the unconscious just sort of naturally allows you to go play. Yeah. Right. Absolute permission granted. So so the subtly, it's not perfect language, but I say permission granted, not permission given. So if you think I'm going to give myself permission, that's still self-discipline energy, managing yourself to do the thing that wouldn't come naturally. Permission is is held by the unconscious mm-hmm. and can be withheld if you don't play the game properly. So the, the conversation is, could you please upgrade so that then you can have permission granted? Once it's safe, great. Yeah, let's go play. Let's go succeed. And um, you won't hear from me again until there's an issue and then I'll pull you up. And that's fun. Like to get that happening quickly and to have that process of stop. You don't take six months to review that. You, you know, take six hours, then get back in the game. It's just such a lovely experience to have that level of conversation with yourself because it just increases the, how safe you feel. Like, wow, I have, I have my own unconscious ability, the ability to alert me to danger that I haven't even seen to make sure that I give myself the best chance of winning and, and playing. So it's a lot of fun. 
I have a lot of hope and a lot of <laughs> conflicting feelings, hope being one of them coming out of this conversation, hope from the clarity that you've just given so graciously um, to myself and you know, I hope everybody who's listening and a little bit of angst to, to think about how, how some of these hard questions uh, are going to show up for me and how I'm going to apply them with my life. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, damn you, Jamie, <laughs> you inconvenienced me. <laughs> so tell me, you know, tell me when, when are you hoping this book comes out? And in the meantime, you know, where can people come into contact with your material, digest your material? Uh, it's just so valuable. And I, I, I'm encouraging everybody to do so. Yeah. Thank you, Joel. Uh, well, look, the game that I'm, I'm playing at the moment around this book is to have it published by one of the big US publishers. And I understand that's a very difficult game to play and it is the game that I want to play at the moment. So having submitted this work to agents and and in due time we'll hear back or won't hear back. And then if I'm wrong about that game, we'll have to readjust my game and go to self-publishing, which will speed up the time that this book enters the market. So it's hard to say when you'll see it's this. It's, right yeah. But are you talking about this on your podcast or on social media? Yes, I am. I, I definitely talk about it on my podcast. So that would be the, the answer to the second question if you were interested in this. Um, my my podcast, um, Be Unhindered with Jamin Fraser, is, um, you know, it's, it's basically me riffing on these ideas. I, I do some live coaching sessions too where people – you can listen in to someone else wrestling with these ideas and how I would coach them through that. So that's particularly useful for people because you can't help but try it on yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, that, that uh, unhindered podcast would be the best place to go to while you're waiting for this book to find the light of day. I am curious since you talked about outfits and outfits for the game of being an author and outfits mm -hmm. for the game of writing your book. Do you have your author's outfit? <laughs> Well, definitely. Like the um, the writing outfit is very, it's very practical and um, and and quite dark. Like it's just they're all dark colors and just, um, but they're comfortable. It's real comfort. I don't want to have to think about being uncomfortable. I'm in the car. It's cold often in the morning. Um, but what but about then, your author's yeah. outfit? Yeah, absolutely. But just you know, I do love a good jacket. I, I love I love a bit of bling happening on it and, and a nice shirt. So it would be some variation of, of what I'm uh, wearing at the moment would be the, it's the, the, the sales process. It's the, here is an idea and here is me as this, as the embodiment of that, that idea. So I feel, I said that on my podcast this week, I feel like why people keep coming back to my podcast is that they crave certainty mm -hmm. and, and that that is what I what I bring when people look into my eyes when they hear my voice they they believe me because I as as bold as it sounds and potentially arrogant I I have devoted my life to thinking about these things and I've gone all in and feel like I've got something to say and I'm willing to actually say it you know I my daughter picked up this training program from the US the other day and paid good money for it and I watched the first video with her and and the trainer comes on and says look. You know, I'm just learning this stuff too. So what what about we'll be both students together with this? We'll, we'll learn together as we go through this process. I thought, 
that's a disaster. She just paid all this money for a student. Um, I would have hoped she would get a teacher. And so, so on my podcast, I have the audacity to say, um, come and sit and listen and I'll, I'll teach you what I know. And I don't take that lightly. And I, I think about how that might sound, but nevertheless, uh, that is what I do. And I feel like I have a contribution to make to this community, ambitious midlifers who haven't understood the, the dynamic of how to clean the space within. It's a very difficult thing to do, but I couldn't imagine anything more worthwhile to do and not just for you by the way because if you're sitting on what you are sitting on and you haven't found a way to get permission from yourself to bring it to the world we're all missing out so for the sake of the world uh, these are very important conversations and very important problems to solve and so yeah if you, if you listen to the podcast you'll you'll hear me talking quite directly and and clearly about these ideas um as someone who believes they know something about a certain subject and has a framework that that is apl- applicable um in a whole range of circumstances well i don't think there's anything wrong with that at all i think that your mission to you know help alleviate suffering is is something that you it is a it's a gift and it's something that you do very well very very well and I think that that certainty is why somebody would come to you. It's it's why I sat here so mesmerized for two hours, almost two hours with you. And it's the job of the listener or the client to then take that certainty that you have just, because that's yours. That certainty is yours. And you're mm-hmm. not saying, hey, take this certainty and then you know become my disciple. You're saying, take that, to cer- right. that certainty and, and process it through yourself and that's the teacher student right and and when does the student you know yoda's not going to teach luke forever at some point luke has to stand on his own two feet and that's and that's something you offer and your podcast is correct me if i'm wrong you have you have a 10 minute podcast as well as a longer form or just the one well i used to do 10 minute tuesdays that was how i did my content um for a number of years and in the last 18 months or so I've added music to the background and and riff a, a lot longer, so mm. kind of talk for up to forty five minutes now. So that's that's fantastic. The more the better. Before, <laughs> before we uh, before we depart, is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to share? Oh, it's such a lovely. It's a privilege to have someone ask such good questions and be willing to listen. So no, I, I can't think of anything else I'd like to say. Thank you, Joel. No, thank you. Thank you very much. I used to do 10-minute Tuesdays. That was how I did my content um, for a number of years. And in the last 18 months or so, I've added music to the background and and riff a, a lot longer. So mm. kind of talk for up to 45 minutes now. So that's that's fantastic. The more the better. Before, <laughs> before we uh before we depart, is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to share? Oh, it's such a lovely, it's a privilege to have someone ask such good questions and be willing to listen. So no, I, I can't think of anything else I'd like to say. Thank you, Joel. No, thank you. Thank you very much. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. No, there is a lot of podcasts out there. So we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others and all that great stuff so if the spirit does move you subscribe share post anything we'd be forever grateful and if you have any comments or feedback good bad ugly it doesn't matter 
We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace. Hey, thanks so much for making it to the end of the podcast. I know that my self and, of course, my guests really appreciate you listening all the way through. You know, they put a lot of time into their projects and their ideas, and and you know, they're very thoughtful with how they they bring themselves and show up on the show. And so I'm really grateful that uh, that you've listened all the way through. You know, we don't have ads on the show, I think. I don't think Red Circle's running ads. But I wanted to take just a quick second to say that, hey, if the spirit moves you, you know, this podcast can be brought to you by some of the wild, fun, wacky, creative things I do. I always try and stay in the practice of creativity, whether that's writing or working on films or uh, just about anything. I, I try and be very diligent that I'm I'm doing it consistently. And so, you know, as a result of that, I put some things out and and I'd love for you to check them out. One is uh, Getting Naked, The Bare Necessities of Entrepreneurship and Startups. That's my book. And you can get it anywhere where books are sold online, like Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or Indigo. And uh, it's the story of my company, Naked Underwear, the first company I started that went from a failed attempt on Dragon's Den, um, your, that's your Shark Tank in America, to the NASDAQ and was eventually divested. And it has a ton of tips and ideas for startups, very practical advice, but it's always also interwoven with my own story, which I think entrepreneurs and creatives and artists can really, uh, would really relate to, uh, you know, has almost 155 ish star, four and a half star reviews. And I think people, if you're going through, you know, a startup needs some motivation, needs some ideas, just want to feel like, Hey, there's a kindred spirit out there. You know, it's a great book to check out. Also, you can check out my blog at joelprimus.com forward slash blog, where I write a couple of blogs a month about a variety of topics, a lot of stuff on fitness, things like how to know when to quit, a lot of personal development, psychedelics, all kinds of things. Everything's written from a personal lens. And, uh, you know, it's just a great way to digest a little bit of hopefully fun and helpful inspiration. And of course, keep checking out this podcast, The Ramble on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever your podcatcher of choice is. Thanks again and have an awesome day, week, month, whatever it is.